You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith. Welcome to the show. The interview subject prepared for your listening pleasure is the one and only Dino Cazares. The catalyst for the conversation with Dino is a new album from Fear Factory. It'll be released on June 18th, 2021, and it is titled Aggression Continuum. Heads up. We'll either break the internet with this one or nothing will happen at all. There's a lot of reveals. I anticipate that if it breaks outside of my usual listenership, there will be some curious people who tune in, wanting to know more about Dino's thoughts on all things related to Fear Factory. So here's the tip. I don't interview. I have conversations. With that, here he is, Dino Cazares from Fear Factory. It's all good. It's so all what, good. What, you're my last interview for today, so. Oh, sweet. What what time is it in LA? So we got, it's 5.37, so it took us seven minutes to link up. <laughs> um, where, are you, where are you right now? Gold Coast. The Gold Coast. I love the Gold Coast. Well, it's, it's probably uh, the part of the world. I've been to Mexico and I've certainly been to Southern California. Um, that re- it, it's almost vis-a-vis. It's basically the same. And uh, the further north you get, it's just Hawaii. So, you know, part of the world yeah. that I think you're probably both familiar and comfortable in. Well, yeah, if you, if you go to the Mexico part, then it would be just be great, get, get great Mexican food. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> we're, we're getting a little bit more of that here now. Not so much Mexican food. I know it's a completely well, different continent, but yeah. There's one, there's one that's not that bad. What's that, Guzman and Gomez? Guzman and Gomez, that's the only one. Yeah, yeah. There was another one called Mad Mex. Have you heard that one? Yeah, it was a bit shit. Yes, yeah, shit. Yeah, <laughs> I tried that. I tried that one too. It was not good. Guzman Gomez was probably the closest thing to anything that's close. That's good. You know what I mean? Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. There was one called Montezuma's for a bit, which is more like a yeah Central American and South American blend. It was basically everything mashed into one. <laughs> no, um, there's there's actually one in the UK, which I'm surprised they haven't made it to the uh, to Australia. It's called the uh, Mission Burrito. Yeah, I haven't heard it. Yeah, and that's it- really good. That's California style Mexican food. It's really good. Um, they're in the UK, and it's actually a guy from San Francisco went over to the UK to start it. Well, it's authentic then, I suppose, isn't it? And hey, let me yeah. share. Let me and share. He this. brought people over with him too. Some Mexicans. <laughs> he brought some Mexicans to cook. I don't, I don't know what it is about SoCal. This is back in the night, night, late 90s, early 2000s when I was over there. But I found as an Australian, I, I bonded with the Hispanics and the Mexican people. They were on my level. And the other thing is the food was the same. It was fresh fruit and vegetables, which a lot of the Americans don't bloody eat. Did you find that too when you came to Australia? It was fairly similar to the cuisine you used to. Yeah, I, I, I like going to the, to the markets to go buy fresh stuff. I have... Um... You know, and the reason why I even say that, because the first time I was going there, I was like, I'm looking for some fucking fresh jalapenos. Mm. And you guys just don't have them there. But you guys had some other peppers that were really good that the Indians use. Yes. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the Pakistani Indians, is what I'm talking mm. about. Uh, so I found some other kind of chilies. But then I ran into a, a friend of mine who ended up starting growing jalapenos for me. So every time I go, she has them fresh there. And I can't necessarily bring them because you can't bring the seeds across, right? Mm-hmm. So I couldn't, I couldn't bring them. Plenty do, though. Even, Don't worry about that. 
Oh, I mean, I do, but look, I'm in a band. I don't want to get caught just with yeah. some fucking jalapeno fucking peppers across and getting thrown back or getting fined, you know, however much they find you. I don't remember, but it was a it was a good hefty price tag for trying to sneak in stuff. So I, I, a lot of times I would claim it or declare it, as they say, mm. um, but they would still throw it away. They would throw it away. Yeah, yeah. My, my mother-in-law's from the Philippines. So she I've got to say she chances a hand, but she declares everything that she brings back. So it's up to the customs officer whether or not it's not like with all due respect, you always see the Chinese nationals. You just see it. You've probably seen it when you come into Australia. The Chinese nationals bring bags full of shit, like food. And they do get singled out because they're bringing back stuff that needs to be in quarantine and they're not declaring it. But they're just well, something that could be well. something that could contain coronavirus, sure. Bloody coronavirus. <laughs> Bloody coronavirus. Um, yeah, but you know, what I noticed is that I could bring hot sauce only if it's sealed up. Yeah. I could bring hot sauce. I could bring cans of jalapenos as long as it's not open or nothing like that. It's a seal in the can. So I could bring that stuff. And that was cool because I started doing that. I started bringing this habanero sauce that I could just put on everything, you know. Mm. I hear Burton's in Australia at the moment. So uh, that's, not, that's not my question. I, I heard that too. I yeah. heard that too. Yeah, I don't know whether yeah. he's living here or whether he's just hanging out, but you're probably aware at this point in time, we, we are literally 100 kilometres down the road from me at Byron Bay. There are literally thousands of Americans these days. There seems to be some sort of a mass migration, particularly of these A-listers and these Hollywood type of people coming and living here at the moment. Is that something that, that is talked about in Los Angeles, that these people are sort of leaving there for here? No, not that I know of. I mean, the only people I know that go out there are either the wealthy want to go on their vacation or, uh, you know, people working in the movie industry because I know that there's, I know that they're down there uh, filming the new Thor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I'm sure that brings in a hefty crew as well. I imagine. American crew, American crew is what I meant to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, but no, I don't. I don't really. Usually, when I'm down there uh, traveling or touring, I usually don't run into a lot of Americans at all, unless they're like some sort of military or they're out there for some other reason. But I, I rarely run into that in in Australia, and I don't want to run into other Americans in Australia. I want to hang out with the Australians. Yeah, I understand the feeling because when I'm offshore, I don't want to hang out with Australians. You just well, one of the things, yeah, I understand. One of the things that I noticed over the years of just traveling and being on the road and touring is that how Americanized the rest of the world is becoming. Yeah. And I kind of don't, I kind of don't like it because I kind of feel like some of those other countries are kind of like, you know, wanting to adapt too much to the Western world, as they say, or um, they're kind of losing their culture a little bit, you know, and I don't like that. I would absolutely agree with that. And I've got to say that, in the last probably ever since the social media age dawned, so 13, 14 years ago or so, particularly in, I've got to say, a lot of bad ideas that are coming out of the US. It's like this colonialism of ideas that's coming out of the States that's infecting things like the uh, education department and the like, intersectional politics, you know, all that sort of shit. Yes, I noticed that too, but ever since the last, uh, the last, uh, you know, president that we have, a lot of the other world presidents and leaders have kind of tried to follow that kind of motto of pol uh, pol 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 what would they call it? Popular, Politicianist? It's a, yeah. Oh, it's uh, <laughs> like a, they're populist. They're populist ideas. Populist. Yeah. yeah, and I hated that. I hated that too, that that our our president at the time here was, in, was infecting that kind of mentality on politics and the rest of the world. 
I kind of hate, you know, I was not into that at all. Yeah, it makes being an asshole okay, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I hate that. Um, but, you know, what can you do? I voiced my opinion about that stuff before. A, a few years back, when we were um, doing press for Genexus in mm. 2015. Uh, yeah, I got a lot of backlash for my my opinions uh, on the president, but uh, I was getting a lot of death threats. So I kind of like just stopped talking. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, that was at the time he was promoting like Mexicans were bad people and we were rapists and all kinds of stuff like that. And, mm. uh, you know, build a wall and things like that. So whenever, you know, me being Hispanic, voicing my disdain against the presidency, um, you know, I was getting a lot of uh, death threats, you know, pe people telling me to go back to my country, things like that. But whatever. It was just, you know, internet threats. I interviewed, you know, George Lynch, of course, the great guitarist George Lynch from Dokken, and he's done plenty of his own stuff about three years ago, four Very years ago. Very much an influential. Very much influential in my playing. Yeah, magnificent guitarist and a great guy, i got to add, too. And I had a conversation with him, and probably we spoke for about an hour and a half or thereabouts. It was a podcast because I host a podcast series, and I reckon about five minutes of that was talking about his disdain for Trump. Get this, blab that was four years ago. Blabbermouth is still referring to the conversation all these years later. It was only in January or February, actually more recently, I think it was April, that there was an article, because I've got a RSS feed set up, ping every time the podcast gets mentioned, I get notified. I can't believe it. And it's because other artists and other media outlets keep referring to the things that he said on, on the podcast. He, he, but of course, you can imagine what George's perspective on Trump would be, that he's an arsehole and that he's illiterate and... Don't know whether he said he's illiterate, but you know, alluded to that this guy wasn't very smart. But uh, yeah, I saw the comments, mate. And my ultimate view on all of these things is that we live in a liberal democracy, both you and I. You can say whatever you fucking want, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're putting yourself up on a pedestal to be punished, though. No, but you're also, but you kind of are because you're leaving uh, everybody else to give their opinion too about what your opinion was. So. That's the that's the the beauty and also the 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 demise of our social media is that you know everybody just just because what you say may be right or wrong, there's always going to be somebody out there with a different opinion, and some of that stuff could really backfire on you. And never uh, like if you're especially a guy like George Lynch or myself who said those things back in you know five years ago. Um, that stuff's gonna. There's gonna be always somebody there to bring it back up. Blabbermouth is is the probably number one that never lets it go. <laughs> you know, I've had many conversations with a guy from Blabbermouth uh, yeah, uh, who runs Blabbermouth. Yeah. yeah, and I've said, you know, he's he's giving he's giving me advice like, hey, maybe you shouldn't say this because it's gonna come back to you. Well, it's gonna be someone like you who's gonna keep bringing it back. <laughs> I would always tell him stuff like that, but. Uh, but, you know, once you say it and it's out there in the world, it's never, you know, it's always going to be there. Yeah, and, you're not wrong. And there is, the, there is you can get, to, you know, you can get canceled in the court of public opinion. Even if you just get accused, accused of something but never, never convicted of anything, still the court of public opinion has that opinion about you and, and it can definitely ruin your career. And that's why a lot of people are against this cancel culture thing, you know what I mean? So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Jordan Peterson's talked about it. Joe Rogan has had a lot of guests on his excellent podcast where they've been diving into that and, and, and dissecting it from a perspective that comes back to public policy and how it does impact the laws that then get made through, through the Senate and the Parliament. 
And uh, we've got a lot to be worried about, mate, on that front there because a lot of these hardcore lefties right now... Well, there's, going- there's, a, there's a lot of guilty until proven innocence. Well, I think it should be the other way around. Innocent Correct. until you're proven guilty. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, that goes for everybody, not just, you know, something that I might have said. But that goes for everybody. But unfortunately, in this, in this, in the way we are, the way we've been over, over years and years and years, and just now, you know, it being more accessible on social media, your opinion. So, you know, you can automatically get destroyed just within a, if something goes viral, you know. Yeah, I understand. I understand your perspective. And, and my, I've just written a, a book and I've talked about this quite extensively through the book, but uh, that um, it's the fans fault. And allow me to explain. Bory and Blabbermouth and Metal Injection, they're out there. They are what they are. We can't do anything about it. They'll report on what you and I say or whatever, myself and George and myself and Gilby Clark from last week. It just It's going to happen. But if the fans have got to stop being motivated by gossip and stupid innuendo. You know, like, like at the moment, I notice that the trending items are, are, are people are searching for things to do with yourself and Bert. Okay, rather than the new album. So it just seems to be human nature, whether you're an old woman reading Woman's Day <laughs> or a 15-year-old tuning into Blabbermouth, we love this sort of controversy. Look, ever since I was a kid, you know, my mother watching the soap operas on TV, drama sells. Drama is what motivates people. Sex and drama, things like that. Uh, people like looking at other people going through some sort of... Uh, suffering or, you know, uh, just, you know, uh, somebody banging somebody else's wife or girlfriend or, you know, just things like that, you know, reality television or what people think is reality television. You know what I mean? All that stuff and just how, you know, even for the first early cop cop shows, you know, people like seeing all that stuff and it's just there and it's never going to go. And unfortunately, it's always been there, but now it's just way more accessible and people can have been able to give opinions about it forever since since uh, since social media, since the internet. You know what I mean? But now it's just completely gone out of control because everybody's so reliant on their phones and they're reliant on what they hear that they're able to give instant uh, reaction. And, and you're you gonna, you've been there you're for all of it. it. But you've, you've been there but, for all of it. You've seen the transition yeah. and been in the spotlight through yeah. that process. Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 I get my fair share of you know a lot of people giving me shit because you know one person might have said something negative about me you know that one person uh you know uh g- going back to burton c bell like when he when he saw the gofundme campaign you know he tried to sabotage it which i don't know why i didn't understand why obviously he was hurt by something i don't know because we haven't spoken in the last three plus years uh, so I don't know what he's going. I can only quote by why he, by what he's put out there. You know what I mean? Because a lot of people ask me, "Why do you think you quit?" Like I don't know. Like I can only go by what he said in the media. You know what I mean? And what he's tried to do to me. You know, he's tried to take down the GoFundMe campaign, which is kind of weird because he's only benefiting from that as well too. Hmm. So him trying to sabotage it, I don't get it. He was just. I guess if he's going down, he's trying to take me down with him, I guess. It's the only thing I can think of. You strike me as a, you're very charismatic. You have very strong leadership skills, I think it must be said. But strikes me as a guy who's very sensitive. Do you think that that's a fairly accurate summary of both of your character types? Yes. 
Very much so. I could say that I'm more of a head-on kind of guy. Like I take things on head-on, you know what I mean? Mm. Or he's kind of more of like it needs either he tries to ignore it or it takes him a long time to settle the issue. Yes. I usually like to take care of it because I don't want it to keep lingering. I don't want it to keep thinking about it. Like, oh my God, blah, blah. I like to just take take it head on and then that's and then boom, it's over. You know? So, but you know, some people some people have some people handle those kind of situations differently. You know what I mean? Um, but for me, it's you know, people can cry and bitch and call me names and blame me for everything. And that's okay because I understand that some people are grieving and some people need a scapegoat, right? Mm. Um, but I'm lucky that I'm a strong individual. I can handle it. I can take it. And I've been taking it, right? Uh, I'm also very accessible on social media. I'm out there. Mm. Um, you know, I'm accessible for them to, for, for fans to, you know, lash out on me because you know, he's not a very social media guy at all, really. Uh, and he, I know he doesn't get involved in answering fans' questions and stuff like that. If he does, it's very minimal, but he doesn't do it much. But for me, I'm there, so I'm answering these questions as best as I can. You know what I mean? All I, all I know is that, look, when it comes to creating music, I believe in myself. I believe in my idea. I believe in what I create. Uh, and I like to dive into it head on, right? Whatever it is I'm committed to, I dive into it. And I don't fear change. I don't fear where the, my future is going. Uh, and I don't fear what people say. I don't fear it at all. I can handle it. I know that sometimes it's, it's, it's the moment. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean it's going to be there forever. But at the same time, I know that I can't succeed without some sort of failure. Right? So for me going forward... I have no choice. The guy quit the band, so I got I to gotta move forward, right? And that's what, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to pre present it in the truest form that it was from day one, from when I first started, when I have, when I started the passion and the love for this band. And it's still there from all these years. Because there are, have been journalists who've asked me, is it all worth it to you? All this yeah. shit that's gone on, you know, all these lawsuits, all, all the money that you guys lost, you know, all the bankruptcies, the divorces and the, you know, broken relationships. Is this all worth it to you? And I, and I always tell them, yes, it's very worth it to me because my passion has not died for what I created. Resilience and perseverance come to mind. There, you, there you go. There you go. The, way, the application, the way you've been able to apply yourself. But, um, and, but there are some people out there who, who, who want to tell you what you can't do. They want to tell you, you can't do it. You can't move forward. You can't move forward. You know, you're never going to find another replacement. Just give it up. Give it up. Turn, uh, uh, you know, start, go start a new band. Blah, blah, blah. You know, people tell me that all the time. But that's what drives me. That's what motivates me even more just to prove them wrong. Because I know that what I'm going to deliver after this record in the future, what I'm going to deliver is just going to be amazing Fear Factory stuff you're going to hear that you always heard. Mm, that's a, nothing's going to change that's a that's a very good point okay and i'm going to i'm going to talk about the album a little bit now because that's a good springboard into that because my, my question for you and i couldn't figure it out so it's, it's a legit question and I'd, I'd love to hear the answer 
because I couldn't work out whether aggression continuum is a reinvention or if you're further refining that signature fear factory sound, you know, the triplet picking, the machine gun bass drum and the clean, gruff vocals. Which, which of the two do you think it, it more aligns to? I think what it more aligns to is just continuing what we did from the very beginning. Obviously, when we when we got to D Manufacture, we redefined our sound compared to the first record, right? Hmm. And it's progressed from there. Yes, there's been many different angles that we brought in and tried and stuff like that. And I'm going to keep continuing experimenting with music, of course. I'm going to continue bringing in different elements into this record, uh, into the future records. But on this record, like for a song like Recode, um, there is a big orchestral feel to that song. Yeah. It's soundtrack. It's a very soundtrack quality, exactly. Mm. And that is because um, one of the things is, one, I heard that. Two, uh, trying to explain that to, a, to, a, 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 to someone else, trying to explain your idea to someone else, doesn't always work. But we had this guy named Igor Krishkov who used to be in a band called Yes. Okay. And I was like, and I was like, I think it needs this. I got it. And then he was this, he's this guy's like a multi-talented, you know, Russian trained musician. He's a Russian. And he's just like this super gifted prodigy kind yeah. of guy. And he just fucking wrote that thing. Like, in, I don't know, the next day it was done. I was like, holy shit. Like it was, there was actually a lot more stuff there. And I was like, I think we need to take some of this stuff out because there's so much stuff going on. Right. And in his mind, all that works. Right. But maybe not exactly to everybody's mind. So I was like, okay, we need to remove some of this, these these elements that were just, you know, so much going on. Mm. And uh, but it worked out great. The combination worked out killer. And uh, you know, those are the different type of elements I like bringing into the music. Um, the last time that we touched up on anything like that was during a song called Resurrection. Yeah. Um, that was when we had actually had the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra come in and, and uh, record with the band. That mm. was amazing. We couldn't record it because, yeah, we couldn't re we couldn't actually videotape it because these guys, this orchestra, was moonlighting. They, in other words, they can't take any other gigs when they're getting paid by the fucking government, oh, of Can okay. the Canadian government. Yeah. They can't be doing moonlighting, doing other gigs, so we couldn't videotape it, right? And so we couldn't document it on video, which just sucked. Okay. Unless we had to, unless we would have put masks on everybody while they were, you know, doing everything, but. They wouldn't go for that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Slip not before slip not sort of thing. Because that's 1997 or 1998. Well, no, I was, I was making a joke. Like, you know, we wouldn't want to put masks. All I know, I get that. No, but, I get that. But, you know, but, man, uh, like, it hasn't been done, though, has it? You know, masks on orchestras yet? You know, be, you know, <laughs> Corey Taylor's probably trademarked it already. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, you know, we like to, I like to, moving forward, I want to bring as many different elements as possible. I mean, once we announce a singer, uh, it's mm. full steam ahead, but there's no rush. It's not going to happen before this new record comes out. The main focus is the new record. Um, and if I did, I wouldn't tell you who that was at the moment. Anyways, oh, that's, that's fair that's enough. A, yeah, that's a, that, that's the kind of thing that is a uh, that is going to be an announcement. As a matter of fact, we might even do a live stream where we announce announce the singer live stream and maybe even place answer a few questions and then maybe. Uh, do uh, do like a few songs so you can see this how well this person sings with the catalog. You know what I mean? Um, 
and then uh, maybe introduce something new and then maybe take a bunch of questions. I know there's going to be a lot of questions and people are going to want a lot of answers. And I think it's going to be fun. I think it's exciting. and I can't wait because, you know, it could bring a whole new element to Fear Factory, a whole new chapter to where I could go somewhere uh, new. I'm not going to say I'm not going to say different because some people don't like the word different. You know what I mean? Some people are afraid of the word different. So I would say somewhere new, somewhere new and creative and somewhere new, or maybe a lot of the same. <laughs> Who knows? You know, I haven't really gotten there yet. So, uh, but I'm excited to see what's to come. I did listen to your conversation with Jasta because it was a lot of insight that you gave to Jamie there. And it was very interesting to hear your thoughts on your philosophy about finding a new vocalist. You wanted to go with somebody, and this is my word here, a rookie rather than get a known singer in. But you also went into extraordinary detail talking about how you've dealt with bloody band members crying beside buses telling you they want to go home when they're on tour. So it is a balance, isn't it? <laughs> no doubt you've been through the ringer, but... <laughs> well, you know, you just have to deal with people. It's, it's people. It's just yeah. people in general. Look, I'm a, some people may think I'm a hard ass because I'm not going to give that guy a hug. Because he's crying because he wants to go home. Mm. You know what I mean? Somebody may, 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 somebody may think that I'm insensitive. But I'm not necessarily here to coddle musicians. You know what I mean? I'm here to like, because I, I, I take my work seriously. I want to go on the road and I want to entertain. And that's what, I, that's what my life is. And if somebody can't handle it, then they're going to crack. You know what I mean? And you don't want that. You know what I mean? Because obviously fans cry when somebody quits the band for whatever reason, right? They cracked. They can't take anymore. They leave. And it's always like the surviving members are the ones who have to deal with all the shit, right? Not the one who actually left. Mm. So that's kind of, it's, that's one of, the, one of the things you just have to deal with musicians. That's how it is. But of course, when we find a singer, I didn't mean necessarily meaning amateur, amateur, amateur. Obviously, they're going to have some sort of talent. I guess it would be like the American Idol, right? Yeah, these sure. guys are amateurs or unknown but they obviously have talent and they're being trained, right? And then they got to be prepared of what's to come after that. They're going to be putting records out. They're going to be taking photo shoots. They're going to have to stay in shape. They're going to have to keep their throat in shape. They got to be on tour. They're going to be doing press all day. They're going to be doing media, blah, 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 and all that stuff that comes up. Sure, you want to make sure you hire a guy that can handle all that. Remember, also, that guy is going to have, that person is going to have to be uh, it's going to have to be mentally strong as well too. Because remember, he might get a lot of backlash because he's replacing somebody else who's been there for 30 years. So you got to make sure that that guy can handle it. Like yeah. I'll give you the perfect example. Um, Derek, uh, Derek Green from Sepultura. You know, he got a lot of shit from the Sepultura, from the Max Cavalera fans. He got a lot of stuff. And he fucking was, he was a strong enough individual to take it. He's still taking it. You know what I mean? He still hears it here and there. You know what I mean? He still managed to keep his composure, keep keep his professionalism and go out there and do it. You know what I mean? Every night. And I, I, I commend a guy like him who have, had to deal with that. You know what I mean? Yeah, that poor <laughs> bastard. Yeah, I know. I've I got to say, the, the, the interview that he did with me was the one that um, Gloria got involved in and sent the missile across to him over. I asked a fairly honest, fairly simple, basic question with him, which is that why do you think fans keep on asking for this reunion? Because it's clearly not going to happen. And also, 
Derek's been in the band, I think, three times longer now than what Max has been. And I'm a fan of both, so don't get me wrong. It's not I don't take either side here in that in that way. They're both crafting great music these days. But uh, yeah, Gloria really fucking let him know about it via a social media text. And uh, uh, all he said in response to my question was that, well, it's just hard for people to move on. And that's fine because people love that era. And I guess it's the same for you, though, mate. You know, I mean, you, you definitely, I could, I, I have seen the comments. You know, we've talked about it up top there about the <laughs> side of things. And but uh, I yeah. guess, I guess it's just part and parcel of what you've got to deal with when when you do change things, isn't it? Yeah, it's something. Yeah, you're always you're always going to feel like you're on a defense. You know what I mean? Because mm. you always want to prove somebody wrong. And you and uh, I think at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I say or matter what they say. At the end of the day, it's a matter of what the music sounds like. And if it sounds amazing, I think people are going to love it. It's right. not, it's, yeah, you're right. But it's, it's not just, you, you've worked with, with professionals like Tim Young, uh, from Hate Eternal, Morbid Angel and God, and uh, there's a few other bands that he's been in, but uh, you worked with him as well. And your comments about your relationship with Tim are out there for anybody to read. I get that. But it's, it really, honestly, it just seems like it comes down to the personality. And I, I'm a musician. I don't know whether you can see the basses and guitars behind me, but uh Musicians are bloody hard people to be around at the best of times. <laughs> and, and when you get somebody or a group of people, and hopefully those you at this stage in your career, people know that you know bullshit and are only drawn to you because they want to they want to live for the metal and they want to play the music that you've crafted over the years. But it's it's never easy. Reality is it's still never going to be easy, is it? And with all due respect, there will probably be new issues with the people that you surround yourself with moving forward, won't there? You've just got to be prepared to deal with it. Yeah, well, you're going to have to be prepared with all different types of personalities, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and once you, you, you know, you're living with a person in a small, confined space, compared to if you were roommates in a, in a two-bedroom apartment, right? Mm-hmm. You're in a smaller space than that. You're basically living in a room together, you know what I mean? So you're really up close. You're really, really there with the person, and you really get to know the good and the bad, you know what I mean? Um uh, it, it's okay. You you know, if you really like the person, you learn to deal with it. You know what I mean? And that's just pretty much what happens. You know, mm-hmm. I've, uh, I've learned to deal with, uh, you know, burns issues for many, many years. Right. Um, and I, I assume he, same thing with him, with me. Right. But it always seems like, I guess he's always the one that's quitting. He's quit like three times now already. So, yeah. um, so I always felt like he was looking for a way out. Maybe he was hoping one of his other bands would take off and get big and, and that he would, um, you know, just have to could easily say goodbye to Fear Factory, right? Um, but now, uh, you know, I guess just all the legal stuff, uh, some people just either you survive or you don't, right? And that's just pretty much what happened. Uh, for me, that's how I see it. But, you know, moving forward, I don't, you know, bring it on. I'm ready for the challenge. I'm mm. ready for uh, for whatever any fan wants to say or ask or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm up for it. I'm up for it. Okay. I think that I think that I think that at the end of the day, when people hear the music, they're gonna go, "Hmm, okay, it's not Burton, but it's fucking killer." And um, and okay, uh, I like the past thirty years uh, of what the band created, but. Listen to this new shit, man. It's fucking killer. Okay, maybe it's not, you know, it doesn't sound like that, but you know, I like where where Dino took the band, took it to the next, took it to somewhere new, and that's what I want to do. Yeah. 
Well, I, I think I think you've done that because I think Aggression Continuum is your, your strongest album since Mechanize. But I also think potentially in, in the longer term it might even be a stronger album because it's got the, the essential ingredients, that soundtrack quality that I think you've been aiming for for a long time. I think exactly for the reason with the Russian fella, I think that's why you've nailed it. And And I also think that this album could be, when I say that, your best album since Obsolete. Uh, which I which I think wow. was a, which I think was a game changer for metal in general back then. A lot of people put focus on uh, demanufacture, and indeed the follow up remanufacture. I'll ask you about that a bit later on about the the impact that that had. But you do have a number of firsts in there, and I think what you did you blended a lot of that um, that mechanical sound that you had with some more natural stuff and obsolete. And I think you're doing something similar here now, but in the, you know with the orchestra and the heavy heavy material. And, and I'll make this, I've got to, I'm going to shoot on a few, another point in here that people don't realize how much of a game changer I think Obsolete was because it was the first time, particularly in 1998, heavy metal was about as popular as a turd in the punch bowl back then. There was You Guys, Cradle of Filth, Sepultura, and um, oh God, there's one. Corn. Corn, I don't, I know, I know your mates with the guys, but they're not a metal fans, metal band, if you know what I'm saying, whereas you guys are. You know what I'm saying? Well, a lot of, a lot of metal has their like them, though. And I, I know what you're saying, but a lot of metal has their like them. Yeah, they don't they have did, credibility. They did have a crossover. Sort of. Yeah, they, they yeah, do. You're, yeah, you're probably right about that. You're probably yeah. right about that. But, but it's Strapping Young Lads, Sepultura, Cradle of Filth, and some of the black metal stuff, and of course you guys, you know. Um, I saw mainstream people wearing your T-shirts. Short guys with hair like mine, short hair or what have you. But this is back then when metalheads were about very identifiable camo pants, the whole works. But you go to a university campus and you'd see a pretty standard looking girl or guy wearing a Fear Factory obsolete T-shirt. That's mm -hmm. the devil in the detail. That's the impact. Uh, we started to come, you started to see us on on television shows, like posters. In, like if like if a, a family had a kid, mm. the kid had a poster of Fear Factory in the background. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. You know, like Sopranos, Sopranos, the guy's wearing a beanie. You know, the kid's wearing a beanie, a Fear Factory beanie. Yeah. Um, I think what it was, was Demanufactured definitely made a statement saying, okay, here is a new sound that mm. people have not heard. And that's why it had such an impact, right? It was all the reviews were five out of five, 10 out of 10, 100 out of 100. Mm. <clears throat> but when Obsolete came out, we were we were kind of answering to all the backlash that we got on demanufacture. Now you're thinking like what backlash? Yeah. Well, the backlash was <laughs> the backlash was that people thought that it was not real musicians playing that. They thought the drums were programmed and they thought my guitars were sampled, which it wasn't. Right. We were, we were a live band. So we were like, okay, we're going to give you something fucking live. And this is going to be what we interpreted live to be like. So we made steps on obsolete to make it more organic as possible, but we're still having all those electronic elements involved, right? <clears throat> one of the main things that we started was on D manufacture. When you do a click track, it was one tempo all the way through. Mm. So if it was a 190 BPM, it was 190 BPM all the way through. So if you take a song like shock and it starts at 190, but then it dips down to 185, goes back up to 195. So we made it, we gave it an organic tempo change. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do, yeah. So, so, the, so the tempo in the- It's got groove, so the, yeah. The click track had, yes, exactly, made it more groovy. But the click track made it more natural. So it had you know, ups and downs, ups and downs, right? Like a human played it, because you're not 
no one's that perfect of a drummer where you're going to be perfectly on the perfectly, uh, you know, on a click track without having a click track. Right. Mm. So <clears throat> that was one of the steps. One of the other steps was uh, um, using live kick drums, snares and tom samples. In other words, Raymond recorded the drums. And while he was recording the drums, we also recorded a snare solo, kick drum solo and a tom solo. And we used those as the samples. So it was just his organic kit, him playing his organic kit, but using those as the samples, which is killer, yeah. right? Uh, and just, you know, things like that. We actually gave the album cover a more earthy tone. Mm. So you see the brown, brownish, yellow, black, you know what I mean? So it gave it more of an earthy tone, as you would say, dirt or whatever, right? Mm. <clears throat> just to make it look organic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think it connected with people on a on a on a gut level that way, and and even even that iconic imagery, the brain connected we, to the spine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but that was, uh, but hold on, even like we were even made conscious decisions. Okay, okay, let's try to write a song where we don't use double bass, because everything prior to that was there was double bass, except maybe one or two songs, right? Um, but if you go, we we, we were like, okay, let's make Edge Crusher, no double bass, okay. No double bass. We can, we got it. Okay, let's do another one. Let's do Descent. No double bass. Okay, we got it. Let's do another one. Resurrection. No double bass. Okay, cool. We did it. You know what I mean? So we were actually consciously trying to write songs without double bass and just make, and it was actually harder, believe it or not. You know what I, mean? I bet. Well, <laughs> to not do some sort of kick pattern and some crazy shit, right? Yeah. Um, we just, we didn't want to make a groovy record because we felt that, Everybody was saying that the manufacturer was cold and had no emotions, no feelings. And it was just this fucking piece of steel on, on, you know, so we wanted to actually make something more organic and groovy and something more in a way, kind of, you can hear the maturity of obsolete as well. Right. And we couldn't have written a song like resurrection if we hadn't gone through everything that we've gone through prior to that, you know, writing demanufacture, going on the road, hearing fans' criticism or, or the love for the record, blah, 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 blah. And it's taking, listening to all that and even listening to journalists, because there was journalists where this whole story and concept went way over their heads. They were like, okay, this is just too much. It's too much for me to enjoy. I guess some of these journalists were like, they, they gave it like a four out of five and an eight out of a 10 and a 90 out of 100, whereas the manufacturer got all straight A's, right? Yeah, yeah. But there was some weird thing where obsolete was just too maybe mature, maybe darker. Maybe the concept was just too brutal, and it just went over some people's heads. It was Terminator 2 to Terminator 1, if you know what I'm saying. It was that it was that follow up, but I thought there were I thought there were there were a lot of linear things that connected it too. So it doesn't surprise me what you say there, but I I thought it was a, a an epic follow up that are bloody hard to write. It's incredibly difficult to follow up an album. I mean, look at with the greatest of respect, Metallica following up Master of Puppets. What did they do it with with Injustice for All? Doesn't sit well with people these days. It did back in the day. We all thought it was godly, but I think your your albums. Uh, up to and with the greatest of respect, up to uh, Digimortal, they've they've held up. If you know what I'm saying, that period when you're out of the band, 
didn't make any sense because you were the face of the band. And it was very hard for, for myself as a fan back then to understand what the hell was going on. So I tuned out. But, the, you know, that, that triumvirate that you've got there, including the, the remix album and EPs that you did as a part of that, they all still stand up. Yeah, well, we always, we always, uh, again, our motto was not, not to fear change, not to fear and experiment with different things. Mm. Now, not all, all experiments work. I mean, obviously, you listen to a, a record like Transgression, that experiment didn't work. I wasn't in the band at the time, but that thing did not work. No, right? neither did I, but if you listen, to be honest, but yeah, continue. Sorry. But if you listen to, if you listen to, you know, Fears the Mind Killer, which is like industrial techno dance, fucking heavy, uh, brutal metal grindcore mixed with mm. fucking insane heavy vocals, right? And that seemed to work. And it, people saw that and heard that were kind of shocked, but at the same time, very intrigued by this new sound, right? Not that other bands like Godflesh and, you know, Ministry did, weren't doing remixes, but maybe not as extreme as the way, the tones that we had, right? So a lot of people were like, at the same time, the people who were kind of scared of it ended up liking it because it was so original and out there you know and they ended up it ended up being the the bridge to soul of a machine to demanufacture right mm -hmm. um but a lot of people uh you know at the time when it first came out they're like what the fuck is this mm. <laughs> but then you know uh, again it opened the doors for us because like songs like scapegoat and like scum grief remix that thing was played in all the clubs, all the metal metal clubs, all the, you know, the uh, techno club. I'm not techno clubs, but industrial clubs and metal clubs were playing those songs. And so those songs were translating well into the metal community. So they ended up accepting that sound. So when D Manufacture came out, it was like, fuck, it was the holy grail of that type of music that was going on at the time. Hmm. And great. also, obsolete, also, I'm sorry, also obsolete was our answer to what was going on at the time as well, too, because there was a lot of bands that were coming out like very much like, um, you know, the, in, in the corn era uh, where a lot of um, more groovier stuff was coming out. We were like, OK, we're going to give you groovy, but we're going to give you our type of groovy. Yeah, yeah. And you got songs like Shock with the kick drum pattern. You know, that's like you don't hear that in groove, but now you do. But back then you weren't he hearing anything like that before. You know, that stuff was pretty pretty groovy and pretty fucking heavy as fuck back then too yeah you, you definitely unlocked that code uh you know we talked about corn before but you know that all that new metal stuff that was going on back in the day which i to be frank with you never associated you guys with until i listened to your conversation with the suicide silence guitarist and then I, then I understood how entrenched you were in all of that stuff but you seemed to uh, you seemed 100 kilometers away from that stuff but that's clearly not the case yeah, no, no, I, I do still feel that we're we're miles apart from that. But I'm not just saying I'm what I'm saying is that I'm just socially aware of what's going on out there as well, too, during the time. Mm. I was very socially aware. And I was like, okay, you know, it's like you want groove, we're gonna fucking give you groove, but we're gonna give you our type of I'm not saying I'm copying corn, I'm not saying I'm copying anybody else. I'm just saying, like, okay, you know, a lot of the kids were going towards the groovy stuff. And I was like, okay, so let's make something more organic. And let's make something fucking groovy as fuck. And that's what we did. We, that's what, exactly what we did. We, we had the full intentions of that. But at the same time, we also gave the Fear Factory fucking electronics and the industrial sounds. And also, we gave you the fucking futuristic fucking man versus machine concept. Man was becoming obsolete. So we gave you this fucking dark story of a concept. You know what I mean? 
And yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We we there was connections. There was a Ross Robinson connection between us and Corn. You know, we we had completed a, a record with Ross. Obviously, it didn't work out, but Ross was able to shop that that record to other bands and he shopped at the corn in other words he was saying showing corn like look i can produce your band you could sound like this right and so it was perfect it was a marriage made in heaven for corn and ross at that time you know what i mean um whether we started that i don't know 100 for sure whether corn was influenced by what they heard i don't know but i can say there was a connection there in between not necessarily because we were we were first, right? But I think the, their connection was to them was from Ross showing them our demo. Uh huh. There you go. Hey, I just want I want to go back to uh, the two albums that I mentioned uh, where you weren't in the band. If that's okay, just to talk about them for a sec. Sure. Sure. Archetype and transgression. Uh, I've no idea if you if if there has been a dip in album sales in that period of time or a dip in interest in the band because you came back in fairly quickly afterwards, and things just sort of seemed to resume uh, with mechanizers. You sort of left off with uh, Digi Digi Mortal in a lot of ways, but do you consider those two albums that you weren't in the band for are they Fear Factory albums or is that a separate thing in your view? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, a lot of people ask me that question. Um, I think that. It's definitely, I have to recognize that it's part of the catalog. I do have to recognize that, right? But I would say, you know, transgression. I, I mean, Fear Factory, Archetype was definitely, you hear they still had, were still were writing on some of the influence that I had left before that. So they were still writing on that influence, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, the band did take a little bit of a dip on Archetype. Uh, you know, on Digimortal, we were, at our peak, we were peaking like pretty high on Digimortal, right? Um, you know, we were we had reached that status of playing in front of five thousand people. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then they went back down to smaller places during Archetype. You know, um, there was a there was kind of a big gap in between the time I left. I think well, that was a two year gap. It wasn't that that, that big, but it was a two year gap in between. Um, Sure. And there was a, you know, I think the band had dipped a little bit, but then again, in transgression, it just, it just fell to, it just fell like a piece of shit. It just fell really hard. Um, Yeah. I mean, I recognize they're part of the catalog because I do say that this is our 10th studio record. So in order for me to say that, I have to, I have to, uh, 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 you know, accept the fact that there were two records without me. And I do. Are you, um, are you on speaking terms with Christian? No. That's a relationship that's never going to rekindle? No. Uh-huh. A lot of water that has obviously still got to pass underneath the bridge for anything there to happen. <laughs> I think the water's dried out. <laughs> yeah, Because of water, at least, at least if there's water, you still have a chance. Yeah, I'll get there, you. There's no water there. The water's just died. It's just dead. It's dried out. <laughs> there's dead fish in the water. Is that similar for Raymond as well? Uh, I reached out to Raymond. Now he was not interested. Yes. Recently, yes, that's that's interesting. Yeah, God, I've just got a massive case of deja vu. Then for some reason, I feel like we've had this conversation before. It's very strange. Um, yeah, I was, I was just, you know, from the fans' perspective, here comes a sepulchre question. 
they want that. And mm-hmm. promoters have no doubt reached out to you and said, here you go, here's the, the golden trinket. Do you think, do you think if, it, I, I know it's not about money, I get that, but you still have to survive and you still, and if you've got kids, you've still got to pass on a nest egg and allow kids to go through college and that sort of stuff. Or even extra fa- other family members that might be dependent in the future, this sort of thing. But would it just be down to money? And I don't have a problem with that, by the way. I know people out there get a, you know, get their knickers in or not over this sort of stuff. But if enough money was dangled in front of you, could you make it happen? <laughs> um, that doesn't mean, yeah, but it doesn't mean it's going to last long. First of all, you're trying to get four guys who don't like each other together mm-hmm. for any amount of money. Doesn't mean it's going to last long or does it, does it, it might not even, even make it to a whole tour. So why bother? Yeah, no, I understand. I, look, I play devil's advocate with this stuff here. I'm, I'm stoked. No, I understand. Hey, look, at, I, 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 I love these questions. I love these questions because these are going to be consistent questions that I get asked all the time. People ask me differently. <laughs> you know, uh, you ask me very differently. And I would say that um, no, because there's too much, there's too much baggage there. I don't know if Sepultura ever sued each other like that. But I don't know. I don't know the full story there. But I know that our story uh, lives were ruined, lives were changed, lives were at jeopardy. You know, careers careers were at jeopardy. You know, because of these lawsuits and yeah. stuff like that. So whether anybody can forgive each other for that, that's a whole other thing. I don't know. I don't see it. I don't see it for any amount of money. But if we did do it for the money, would that yeah. be fair when there's no charisma on stage? No one wants to be there. Would that be fair to the fans? I don't know. I don't think so. No, no. You know, no. fans think, of course, it's like a fancy football league. You want to put your favorite band together, your favorite team together, right? It's That's all it is. It's a fantasy football. It's a fantasy football league. That's all it is. And uh, it's it's going to remain a fantasy for now. You know, I'm never going to say never because you never know what's going to happen. But I can say now to get four members that don't want to be with each other, don't want to hang around each other, don't want to be on the same stage with each other. My, I want to be fair. My perception, and I could be wrong here, is that Christian thought he owned the brand IP. If that is the case, why do you think he came to that conclusion? What do you mean by the brand IP? Meaning the intellectual property about the brand with you out oh. of the band, he became. I think it's what I think about IP addresses. All oh, right. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, intellectual property, as in as in the logo, this sort of thing, because that is a lot of what at the time it does come down to: who owns what, and that, that's the situation with Sepultura. And then, then well, Max did give Andreas the brand IP. Well, it was it was, uh, yeah. Well, the thing about it was is that they the thing is that anybody could sue you for whatever, right? Hmm. And that's what held up the name for a long time. You know, the judge was just going to let anything, wasn't going to let anything go until we got to the bottom of it. And it just took years. That's just the judicial system here. It just takes forever to settle things out, to work things out. But uh, I don't know what, I guess he thought that. I don't even know, to be honest with you. I can only go about what the lawyers say. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess Christian might have thought he owned more than he probably did. You know, he's not an original member, as you know. Uh, a lot of people think he's an original member. Uh, he also didn't perform on D-Manufacture, which a lot of people kind of think he did. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah. yeah. 
So people are like, oh, we want the classic lineup from D manufactured. You know, it's like, uh, well, that would be just us three, me, me, Burton, me, Burton, and Raymond. That would be the classic lineup of D manufactured. Um, but uh, I don't know what he thought he owned, and I, you know, it, it was uh, it was a bunch of bullshit. If he did think that, but obviously that's what his lawyers were pushing for. Didn't work out. We actually have tried to sit down and have conversations about uh, mediation, uh, yeah. about trying to put the band back together and stuff like that. That was something that we, me and Burton were actually offering to those guys to come back, but their demands were just insanely stupid. It was so high. It was like, we, there would, nobody would benefit from it. So that, that idea got tossed, tossed out way back in 2015. Yeah, okay. Six years ago. But you, you've got you've got a good bunch of guys around. You've spoken to Tony, and he strikes me as a stand-up guy. And you've also got Mike on drums, who's in a, in a bunch of other bands too, but he's obviously your go-to. But the other thing is, and from, from the fans' perspective, you, you, are a, you are a very charismatic guy. Excuse the term, a rock star. You're in the public domain, but you're still a person. And like we've spoken about so much, you've still got to try to bloody get along with these people and all of the emotional baggage that they do bring. And, and I, I'm, I'm going to back you big time on this one here, Dino, based on what I can hear on Aggression Continuum, because I've I got to say, I thought this was a make or break album for you, for you personally, meaning that for, for the brand, you know. Every band, every, for me, I feel every record is a make and break record. Every record. And I put, that's, how, that's how I, when I go into making a record, that's how I look at it. Because I always feel like I have to prove my, you know, you know, you know, you know the saying, once you make it to the top, mm. you, it's hard to stay at the top, right? Mm. And my mentality is like, once I create something that's at the top, I got to try to stay at the top. And it means that I have to take a lot of sacrifices and everything I got to do to make sure that that record is that top quality level. Please, please take what I say as a compliment there. It's not meant to sound like I doubted that you had the ability to, you know, come through with a killer album. No, you know, that's not how I took it. That's not how I took it at all. That's not how I took it at all. But you said it's a make or break record. For me, every record is a make or break record. Every record. And it's that it's that attitude that I think keeps the fire going, keeps the, the fire stoked, because without it, the old rest on your laurels thing. Iron Maiden did it when they had Blaze Bailey in the band and they failed terribly. They were relying on through at the worst period of in their career. They were literally, I, I hear through the grapevine that they couldn't even book a, a tour to, to Australia that was pushed out from 1995 to 1996 to 1997. Then never happened during that period. You, you've never had that. And I think that, that also says that metal, the times have been a bit kinder to metal since the mid nineties, which were just atrocious. So that's a question for you. Playing a heavy metal in a heavy metal band in 1994, most people would have just said, "What the hell are you doing?" Nirvana or Pearl Jam or Stone Temple Pilots or the thing. And then, but I think something you did, whether you did it on purpose or whether you're going to do it anyway, but it aligned with the times. That marriage of metal with electronica, and you were one of the first bands to popularise that, which was then picked up. And here's a point by Jazz Coleman, Killing Joke, Millennium, killer album. Did you, do you feel that way that, that people gave you a lot of shit for being in a metal band in the mid nineties or early nineties, I should say. And then you were proving them wrong through that period as well. No, because we, we were really, uh, uh, how do I say it? In LA, there was a big melting pot of music, right? 
music comes and goes all the time. So when bands like Nirvana, Nirvana, early Nirvana, I mean, we, me and Burton had went and saw Nirvana in small clubs that maybe hold like a hundred people, you know what I mean? Small punk clubs and stuff like that. So we were, we were feeling that energy way back. Helmet, Nirvana, Melvin's early Melvin's, you know, Tad, you know, we were all, all into that sub pop, uh, bands, you know, early Soundgarden, you know, that ultra mega. Okay. You know, those, those records were heavy records to us. That was before they became, they reached, this was before those bands reached commercial uh, success. You know what I mean? So we felt, we seen the music change, but we seen another rise in music too. We saw a lot of the bands like Ministry and Skinny Puppy probably being at their biggest they've ever been at that time. Mm. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, the New World Order, what's it called? Uh, the Psalm, uh, Psalm 69 was, it was yeah. a great record for Ministry, uh, Two Dark Park. Uh, you know, Skinny Puppy, Early Irish Nails was coming out. Um, uh, uh, what you would call it? Uh, Nine Inch Nails with uh, the Downward Spiral. That record, those records had a big influence on our, our writing. I mean, a song called Flashpoint, that drum beat in the beginning of Flashpoint was very reminiscent of March of the Pigs. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So we were very much influenced by all those bands. So we, we saw that shift. We saw that alternative type of, uh, of sound and 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 seeing shift into that as well. Besides, besides the uh, you know the commercial bands from you know Pearl Jam and and uh, and uh, Soundgarden and Nirvana. You know we saw that shift, but we also saw a lot of other metal kind of go back further underground. I'm not going to say those 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 scenes died, but they went further back underground. Like the thrash metal scene was gone for a little bit. You know bands were. We're taking their hiatus at that time. Mm. And did, did, did I feel that we were a part of that? No, I did not feel that we were a part of that at all. I thought that we were more of the shift that was going forward because we were more influenced by those other bands like, like Ministry and Nine Inch Nails and things like that and Godflesh and Skinny Puppy and all those bands that were like playing big, you know, 5,000 seater places and they were growing at that time. So we, were, we always felt that we were a part of that scene, even though a lot of my riffs were very reminiscent of you know some early thrash and metal stuff right yeah yeah mm-hmm. but we were we were blending it with newer things and so we always we always felt that you know especially when uh d manufacture came out you know we felt that we were we were something new you know we we knew that we introduced something new and so we never felt that we were a part of something that was dying we were far we felt that we were part of something that was growing yeah, I, looking back, I can see that at the time. I just thought you were, you had Metallica in 1991, just blow the world apart with the Black Album. Then there was you guys and Cradle of Filth and those other bands that I mentioned afterwards. It just seemed like that was the natural success, but it got harder and darker courtesy of grunge. And I think that did open the door. I don't think Nirvana get enough credit, not because they did it on purpose, but they opened up the door for bands like you guys at a commercial level. People were more attuned and going back to that conversation when I was at uni back in 98 and saw the regular people with obsolete t-shirts. I guess, I guess Nirvana opened a door for us. I'm not sure. You know, uh, I, I looked at more as Metallica and, you know, ministry and Nine Inch Nails opened more of the door for us than Nirvana. But hmm. I guess if that's how you see it, that's cool. I don't mind. I mean, cause I like Nirvana. So, <laughs> but I could say that we saw we were there. We saw early Nirvana, early Helmet. I was really more into Helmet than I was Nirvana. Way more into Helmet. Yes, I mean, yeah. So I really, I really, yeah, I really liked that. I really was really into that because they had that groove. They were still heavy. You know what I mean? 
John Stenya. Um, John Stenya, man. He's but the they're in their, but their first Nirvana record uh, with the song "Negative Creep" on it. That was a great album, and that's like was some very cool stuff there. Um, uh, when I wrote the song "Scapegoat" on the very first Fear Factory record, a band like Helmet, that groove was really what helped inspired me to write the groove for "Scapegoat." So. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Page is a Page is a great guitarist. Actually, he sort of disappeared a little bit now. I know they're still sort of around, but um, they're a band that I well, thought uh, was- Helmet's coming up on tour with Ministry and uh, Frontline Assembly. Yeah, I, I know. It just I feel I've got to be honest. I just feel like the vibe's gone, and I think that's just. I could be wrong. It's just I think it's just Page these days, isn't it? And um, it's, yeah, it's yeah, it's just Page. I don't know. Some people don't have. Some people have the passion and drive. He's still doing it. So mm. I, I'm curious to go see how it is live. Uh, uh, it'd be at the end of the year. So hopefully that tour really happens still. Yeah, I had tickets uh, to the Australian go. show here, which was cancelled because of COVID. So they're definitely active. Yeah, yeah, I just don't hear much on socials about them for some reason. But even though, even though in LA, like the scene was changing, like the glam rock was pretty much going back to where it started, you know, back in the, in the infancy stage, and then this whole new sound came in. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just like that sub pop. Uh, all those bands from the Seattle era were getting big. I mean, there was like you know, like again. You know, Trent Reznor had his biggest hit. You know, I want to fuck you like an animal. That was electronic. That was a whole electronic thing. And you know, so we like again. I felt that we were part of more of that movement. So I never felt like us playing metal was taking a chance at all. You know what I mean? I never felt that. And it's kind of funny. That's the first time I ever got asked that question. Okay. I've never felt that we that was. I never felt that we were ever uh, a part of the dying metal scene at that time. Okay. I don't want yeah. I don't want to use that word dying metal scene but it, you know it just because you know certain bands reached a certain peak and then they just kind of went back down just because of how the how much the music shifted the scene shifted just the market in general shifted you know what I mean mm. yeah no I get exactly what you're saying don't worry it makes complete sense you know it's the, the only place I think thrash never went out of fashion and traditional metal was Germany that just seemed to be the place where the Saxon could go and play 15 16 dates but um, everywhere else in the world, particularly here, and I mean Australia and the US are virtually vis a vis these days, as you know. You've been here often enough. Um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, but you, you, you guys, you guys sometimes get things a little later. Sometimes things hits are a little later. Yeah, I don't know about now though. I think think now it's very sort of enmeshed because of social. Media. When I was when I was going back there in like ninety three, ninety four, and even ninety six, hmm. I noticed that some things were a little later. You guys were getting it a little later than we were. Yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah, there was definitely this this feeling like as if it was stuck in 1968 or something like that. It was just <laughs> for, for a period of time there, you know. Hey, I, I've got, I've yeah. got one, one more question to ask you that I've been wanting to ask you for many years. So here it is. Okay. What's the biggest misconception out there about you? Me personally? Yeah. Uh, oof, it's a good question. I'm hard to work with. That's the biggest misconception. The thing I, the reason why I say that is because I feel like, uh, you know, I've, I've been called the control freak, right? I consider myself to be more of a leader. And if you, if you can't jump on board, then I don't, then I, you know, again, I, I take what I do very seriously. I take what I, uh, you know, the music I create, I take it very seriously. And if you're not going to jump on board, then I don't have time for you. 
if you're not going to be there, then if you if you're not going to take it as serious, I'm I'm the first guy in the studio. I'm the first last guy to leave the studio. You know what I mean? There's a different mentality. I always try to I always try to explain it to Kobe and Shaq. I don't know if you're ever a fan of the Lakers. I don't know if you if you understand. Yeah, no, the basketball team. Basketball, but they they yeah. they had they had a very hard relationship, right? Mm. The relationship took a toll. Kobe took his craft very seriously. He was there. He was practicing his craft. Boom, boom. Whatever he was weak on, he knew that he needed to work on. He worked on it. And he was there every day. First one there, last one leave, blah, blah, blah. A guy like Shaq didn't care. Just came in very talented, but didn't care. He had this one big issue. He couldn't make the free throws. Couldn't make them. And it would bother Kobe all the time because they would always foul Shaq because they knew he wouldn't make his three free throws. So why didn't Shaq work on his free throws, right? And Kobe had a big issue with that. Look, you're fucking up the team because you don't go into practice and practice on your free throws. You don't take it serious enough. That's where I sit. I'm the Kobe. I'm the Kobe. If you're having issues with something and you're weak on something, practice it. Take care of it. You know, uh, work on it. And so if somebody doesn't want to be there, oh, I can't go to practice because of my girlfriend, because of my wife doesn't want me to go. Uh, I don't want to drive that far. I don't have gas money. Hmm. I don't, you know, oh, whatever yeah. excuse, whatever excuse you can think of, I don't have time for it. So because of that, you know, people may be like, I'm hard to work with. Well, right. So I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions. Another one is that we're rich. <laughs> we were not rich. We are not rich. You know, we make a living, you know, writing music, putting out merchandise, so on and so on, touring around the world. We don't, we are not rich. So a lot of misconception is that people think we're rich. Yeah. I don't, I, look, with the greatest of respect to you, because you deserve to be rich, but yeah, playing this sort of music is always going to be a grind. No. Well, you know, just just music in general. If you don't have that big commercial success, mm. music in general is uh, this music business is up and down business. One minute, one year you could be doing great. One album you could be doing fucking, you know, a lot of money. Second record, not so well, and then you're just, you know, back down to fucking scraping by. It happens to a lot of musicians. I know I said that was my last question, but I'm compelled to ask this question because I have admired you from a business perspective for a long time and that staying power that you've got. But have you thought about passing that on to the next generation through a management or a consulting business? I have. And as soon as I'm done with my music career, I'm sorry, writing music and being in the studio and going on tour, Mm. that was something I definitely thought about doing for sure. And a lot of bands have asked me, I imagine that there's a wealth of knowledge there, mate, that a lot of bands could tap into. And, you know, that fork in the road moment that a lot of young bands come to, you could shepherd them down the right one. You know who else is really good about that too? It's Dave Elson. Dave Elson's great about that. I listen to a lot of his stuff that he talks about. And it was like, because he's been through a lot of shit too. He's been through a lot of stuff. Mm. And so I read his books and I get into a lot of his, uh, his YouTube stuff that he talks about. And I, and I, can learn a little bit from that as well too. So I like a lot of the stuff he says. David's a tremendous individual. I've had, a, I've, I mean, you, you probably know him. I've spoken to him once, done an interview like this, and uh, he just strikes me as a very centered guy who's who's learned from his mistakes and now applies those learnings in his career. 
Yes. You know. But, you know, a lot of things in this in business, a lot of things in this business is very unpredictable. So you just don't know how an individual is going to react. I mean, you know, he he works with, with Dave Mustaine. He doesn't, you know, you're not exactly sure what's going to happen tomorrow. Oh, God. But yeah. I, I, <laughs> nothing against Dave Mustaine, but I'm just saying it's like, you know, they've had their ups and downs for many, many years as well, too. So. Dave, Dave Mustaine is one of the greatest musicians that ever walked the planet, but he is one temperamental bastard. I've even experienced that personally <laughs> when I've met him, you know, and uh, he's, just, he's just the way he is. I mean, he's, he's ferocious, isn't he, in some respects, and he's gentle. He's also given me a lot of advice way back in the day, way back in the day, and when he was first out of Metallica. I ran into him when I was a kid, and I was 17 years old, and we wow. kind of developed a relationship. Well, I don't, know if, I don't know if I would really call it a relationship, but it was just like a, a small type of friendship to where he gave me a few, some advice and stuff like that and helped me along my way in, in the beginning of my career. He's about the same age as you, or is he a bit older? No, no, he's older. He's like 58, I'm 53. Uh-huh. That's interesting. I don't think that story's out. Yeah, it's, not the first time, it's not the first time somebody asked me that either, recently. About David Stein. <laughs> The age. Oh, the age, yeah. Mate, we're all getting... I notice I've got more lines than everything else. It's crazy to think. It felt like yesterday we're all in our 20s, but here we are. Yeah, we're all... I'm very much... (laughs) uh, You know, I'm older to some... You know, to a lot of musicians that are coming out now. And uh, I don't mind that. I mean, I've learned. I've I've gone through a lot of experiences. It's just life, man. It's just life. You know what I mean? That's what it is. Every day we're... You know, every day we're thrown with new challenges. You know, and it's, it's just how we handle them. And I think you handle them better than most. I've got to say, Dino. So, look, look at that. <laughs> I, I think um, before I don't I'll want let... this to be a sad interview. It's just gonna. You know what? We got a fucking sick record coming out. It's gonna be out June eighteenth, and it's fucking insane. You saw the first video. First video. You know, we got some guys from Finland to direct this video. I want to make it like a little mini movie. I had to be. I had to be creative because we don't have a singer to throw in there, mm. right? So I had to get creative, and I thought this was the best way to go. Great video. Uh, it's a fantastic, for people who aren't aware, it, it's a movie, effectively. It's a, it's a movie, yeah. We're going to do, we're, okay, we're hopefully going to do part two. Nice, nice. It just suits you guys, all of that, that I call it the Terminator stuff. I know it's not, yeah. but you know what I mean. Yeah, all yeah, that, yeah, that no. Black Hawk Down shit, you know? Yeah, this actually was a combination of two things. Yeah, Black Hawk Down, exactly. This was actually a combination of two things. Terminator Salvation and Black Mirror. Uh, Black it's called Mirror. Metalhead. The Metalhead episode. I remember it well. Yeah, the drones. The drone. Well, the dog drones. Yeah. Dog drones. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I remember. And it. The, yeah. yeah. So it was a combination of those two things together. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, you've got that fire, man. It's. Uh, it's. <laughs> as we get older, you remember this when we were kids. You had to take your life so seriously. You were told, unless you went to college or university, as we call it here, get a qualification or a trade, you're basically going to end up being a dead shit and being dependent on social security or something like that. Isn't it, isn't it a marvellous thing that you've been able to carve a career? Yes, you've had the perseverance, but you've also taken advantage of the luck that, that has happened along the way. So you've been smart enough to do that. So you're an example. And I've said this same thing to Tony, actually. People say you can't do it. Dino's doing it. Tony's doing it. You guys are doing it. You're actually out there doing it. So rather than music is something that is actually a legitimate career pathway, if you if you play 
if you do the hard yards, sure. And if you learn along the way too, and you've got to be creative. Yeah. Tony went through some, a lot of stuff when he was putting fair, well, I'm sorry, static X back together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He went through a lot of stuff, man. I was like reading those comments like, wow. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm definitely going through a lot of that stuff too, you know, but that's what, so say la vie, you know, so, so, so it is life. That's how it is. You know, look, I had a, I had a Reddit thread created about me the other day on the podcast. I get it. And that's a tiny bit, nothing compared to what you've experienced, but I get it a tiny bit when people, they create this stuff and they, they, mine wasn't even that bad to be honest with you. It just shocked me that someone would think anything of what I do here with my podcast or even do something like that. But the scale that you must get it at some point in time, you've just had to, I imagine you've just had to tune out and just do what Joe Rogan does, which is not read any comments. But then you said you were, you were doing the social media thing a lot. So you must read a lot. You must read a lot. Yeah, I do. I do, I do read a lot. I do actually start seeing a shift, believe it or not. Hmm. I started seeing a shift of comments, not being so as negative as, as before. I think, you know, when Bert announces his, his departure, it was a big shock to people, right? To people who didn't know. It was a big shock to them. And I think that they were just reacting. You know, that's how they were. They were grieving and they reacted and they were just taking, out all, all, taking it out all on me, right? But it was okay. I handle it. I've been through it. And I expect more of it. You know what I mean? Because as things start to change, some people fear change. You know, some people fear. I don't. As soon as we, as soon as we announce that new singer... Uh, again, I want to put out new, I want to put out a new track. I want to introduce some, uh, maybe a live stream, mm. you know, so people can see right there and we can hopefully get past all the bullshit. Yeah. I, just I, boom. I think that'll happen. But the thing is that it alludes to too, and you, you, of course you remember this 1996 in Sydney, a riot mm-hmm. yes. after, because you couldn't go on stage. People yeah. feel very strongly about what you're doing and what Fear Factory represents. Mm-hmm. Well, that was because Burton lost his voice in Brisbane the night before. Well, actually, he couldn't. Actually, it was uh, I think it was the Gold Coast. He lost his voice. Then by the time we got to Brisbane, he couldn't play. Right? He couldn't sing. So the crowd sang. And then by the time we got to Sydney, uh, the promoter didn't tell. I guess the promoter was hoping that Bird's voice would come back somehow. Mm-hmm. But we actually had taken him to the doctor. The doctor said, "No, you shouldn't." You got to rest that thing for a couple of weeks, right? So for some reason, the promoter uh, let the university know kind of like that day, like a, like a few hours before the show was supposed to start. There's actually a queue out there. And all you see when this lady come, this lady put up a sign in front of the glass window, glass door. She put up a sign, show canceled. So you got like 100 kids out there waiting in line. They're like, what the fuck? You know? They wanted answers, but there was nobody there to give them answers. So they took it out on the, on the university. That was main. Do you remember that? That was on, that was like the leading news item that night. The riot. Of course. Of course. I had to stay back. Everybody flew to England. I stayed back and I did publicity and it was like, I did, I, I guess they were called cleanup, right? Mm-hmm. I had to stay back and I had to like mellow, mellow out to all the controversy. Right. And it was really cool. Cause I got to do, the news stations, I got to do uh, uh, news, all the, all the national newspapers, every magazine you can think of. It opened, it opened doors for us, for other magazines. Like we were getting like articles in like fashion magazines. Like what the fuck? It's because everybody wanted to hear the story. So that, it got us, it got us a lot of exposure. Was, was that one of the first, was that one of the most uh, compelling milestones you think in your career with the media? 
Uh, I would say no, because back in the back in the beginning, uh, when Soul of New Machine first came out, uh, back in the UK, I was getting a lot of racist stuff. You know, really? because of my national, yeah, because of my nationality. You know, it's just the, you know, I think it was just, um, I don't know what it was, but I was just getting made fun of just being Mexican all the time. So that was like something that I had to deal with. That was a little bit more harder than dealing with the university riot. I had no idea about that one there. That that that's yeah. Okay. I called out. I called out a few magazines. I don't want to mention them now, but I called out a few magazines back then and. But it just fell on deaf ears because, you know, I don't know, racism wasn't that big of a topic, I guess, back then. Or it wasn't anything that uh, maybe now if it happened, forget it, maybe cancel culture. Right. But um, back then it was like I called yeah. out a few magazines. I even like threatened to fight some of the journalists and stuff like that. No, good on you. <laughs> yeah. No, you got to look, honestly, to be honest with you, you've got to do that. I've learned the, I went through, through a southern boarding school, so I get it. If you don't put up, they don't shut up. I've, I've had I've had guns pulled on me for being you know Mexican in in other parts of the United States. You know I've had a lot I've experienced a lot of stuff. So, but it's definitely one hundred percent. That was only in the beginning of Soul of a New Machine that that stuff really happened. Hispanic culture and I mean, extreme metal was virtually invented in South America through Volcano and sarcophago. And I was just talking to a bartender in the city the other day about this stuff. Max and Igor predate Chuck and death. People don't know that. But, but the point about that is the, the whole, you know, he, he, uh, satanic Hispanic thing with the Slayer fans and the Destruction fans. Mexico, destruction, Sodom and bands like that have been, they've never gone away in Mexico either. Mexico is actually very similar to Germany. Yeah. That's, I, I've, I've got to say, mate, that shocks the hell out of me that you went through that from the perspective that that heavy metal is a universal language. Jello Biafra talked about that too. He talked about how he'd never seen anything like what music, like what you guys are doing. And he mentioned, I think he mentioned Morbid Angel by name. Morbid Angel are by far my favourite band, I've got to say. I love Morbid Angel so much I've even interviewed Trey's mum. I reached out to a you know, lovely lady because you wanted to get because you wanted to get uh, real answers. <laughs> I, I'm actually a journalist. I'm I'm legitimately a journalist. I've been to university and got a bachelor's degree in journalism. So, and I'm not saying that to big note myself. I'm just saying I want to get to the bottom of things. I like that. I like that investigative side of things. And you can't do that unless you talk to people directly. And if people aren't prepared, first of all, treat people. There's with- another. There's another band who had to deal with adversities with losing a singer. Morbid Angel. Yeah. Well, they're the underground, they're the kingpins of the underground, Morbid Angel. And uh, Trey's always known that. And I think he's always got his, uh, his, his musicians from the underground. I'm, I've been talking quite a bit to Eric Rutan. I'm trying to twist his arm into uh, doing his biography. Yeah, Eric's great, great musician. Fucking amazing musician. Eric Rutan. Fuck. That's all I got to say. I'd love to great, see you do a record. Great with producer. Him. Great producer. If I were to do a record with him, it'd probably be for Asasino. Uh huh. Please do it. I mean, God, you know. I mean, I think Eric and yourself, and you, I've got to lay this title on you: the statesman of our genre, the people who are at the front line, representing, talking, willing to engage with the fans, and are intelligent and articulate. And that's the thing that's always bugged me about extreme metal and i am going to put you guys into this is that it's looked at as a goons genre by people who have no understanding of it but i think when people hear you and they hear eric and i got a good story about eric me and eric 
we did a tour together. I think it was 2012, 2013. It was for the um, industrialist tour. And uh, we brought Hate Eternal out with us. Nice. Fucking amazing band. Amazing band, right? Mm. Anyway, so um, so Eric was like, when we get to Florida, Dino, I'm going to take you this thing called Taco Bus. I'm like, Taco Bus? He goes, yeah, it's a bus <laughs> converted into, uh, like, you know, uh, it's, it was actually a sit we didn't sit in the bus. We sit outside the bus, but they had a school bus converted into a, a like a, a, a restaurant. It's called Taco Bus. I'm like, oh my god! So we took us there, and we all went there. We all sat down, and this food was fucking amazing. This Mexican food was amazing, but they had this a salsa to die for. Whatever there was, they made in that salsa. It was like, oh my god, I gotta have that. And I told Eric, if you can get me a case of this salsa, I'll give you a free amp. I'll give you a free Kemper. It's Kemper. Profiling yeah, yeah. the amplifier. And he goes, okay, perfect. I can use that in the studio. I'm like, yeah, perfect. So I gave him one. And then we got home, like literally a week and a half later, uh, he sent me a whole case in dry ice of this taco bus salsa. And I was like, hell yeah. And we literally started the next tour like a couple of weeks later. So I had all this taco bus salsa in the refrigerator mm-hmm. on the bus. And we were just all really enjoying it. And I was like, thanks, Eric. Fucking, he came through. He's he came to his promise. Yeah, he had to wait for them to bottle it so they could so he could send it to me. That's what took him so long. Being Florida, it must be Cuban, is it? Cuban and Oregon. No, it's not Cuban. It's Mexican. Oh, Mexican, Mexican food. Mexican food. Yes. I don't think I could leave it on a better note than talking about tacos and Eric Rutan. So there you go. That was the man, Dino Cazares from Fear Factory. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and I'm the host of this podcast series, Scars and Guitars, and I appreciate that you've tuned in. Until next time, thanks.